This is The One Thing Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Adam Rindy. The One Thing Podcast brings together leaders in functional and naturopathic medicine to discuss actionable information that may unlock puzzles in the areas of gut health, brain health, metabolism, and longevity. Please note, these episodes do not replace the opinion of your doctor. They are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition. Please discuss this information with your provider and discuss your own unique personal health history before adapting this information. Please subscribe to our episodes so that you can stay on top of the most current information in these areas of medicine. Receiving a diagnosis like irritable bowel syndrome, otherwise known as IBS, often comes with a stigma. Some have felt that IBS is a diagnosis a doctor would use to describe symptoms when no serious pathology has been found. Thankfully, we've come a long way from this definition, and now we recognize that conditions like IBS involve scientifically proven imbalances in both the gut and brain, and must be treated as such. This progress can largely be attributed to the work of the Rome Foundation and the guests of this episode, Dr. Douglas Drossman and Johanna Rudy. They're the authors of the new book, Gut Feelings, Disorders of the Gut-Brain Interaction. In this episode, We'll dive into the details of the gut-brain access and how constructing treatments and approaches to address the biology, psychology, and social aspects of these conditions is needed and is happening today. Please join me in welcoming my special guests, Dr. Douglas Drossman and Johanna Ruddy. Dr. Drossman and Johanna, welcome to the One Thing Podcast. I welcome you for being here with me today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yes, yes. Um, so I thought we could, you know, sort of structure this this discussion because there's been some changes with um, functional digestive disorders that have, um, as far as the classification and understanding. And one of the things I would love to hear about is just a little bit more about how that came to be. Um, why did, um, if you could talk to us about some of the changes that are taking place with understanding functional digestive disorders and and what we um, are looking towards for the future. Sure. I'm glad to do that. Well, you know, there's a history to this. If you go back 100 years or more, these symptoms were just considered that symptoms, diarrhea, vomiting, constipation, abdominal pain. And then as the field evolved, um, we got into gastroenterology becoming an entity, and that was really at the beginning of the 20th century. And what became dominant at that time were what we called structural disorders, ulcers, pancreatitis, Crohn's disease. And people who didn't have that, which was about half the population, had something else <laughs> that defined a real term, and they started to call it functional. Functional meant that the original intent of functional would be a problem in the function of the GI tract. But really what it, what it came down to was they, they felt that there was nothing that we understood because the concept was understanding everything as structure. Now, around the mid-20th century, what became popular was motility, and there were people who worked in motility looking at pressures that were generated in the bowel. And they thought that explained these symptoms. Well, actually, it didn't. It did explain uh, diarrhea and constipation, 
but not as a disease entity. It just explained that the motility was fast with diarrhea and slow with constipation. And then what happened is in the late 1980s, a group of us were thinking that these so-called functional GI disorders, there was more to it than that. And we basically formed an entity that became the Rome Foundation. And this was a bit of a paradigm shift, Adam, because it wasn't based on structure. It was based on, in the absence of structure, were there collections of symptoms that would define an entity that could be properly identified around the world? So we came up with what we call diagnostic criteria. So it's not it's the endoscopy and x-rays are negative, but we can define these cohorts by these use of criteria, which are specific symptoms that we call breed true. So irritable bowel, it's the same set of symptoms. It's just like an, an eating disorder, anorexia nervosa. There's no blood test for it, but you know what it is by the criteria or any psychiatric condition. So that's how we evolved the functional GI. And then the big change occurred is as the Rome Foundation went through four iterations, through one, two, three, and four, just like DSM, we said, we got to change the terminology. And the reason we wanted to change the terminology was because people were not giving it due recognition because it was the absence of structural disease, the absence of a diagnosis that you could follow, and it was a grab bag. At the same time, the science of neurogastroenterology was emerging, and we were learning that there are physiologic basis for these symptoms. So what we found is it related to the interaction between the brain and the gut. We call these disorders of gut-brain interaction, <clears throat> and that became our terminology. We changed functional GI to DGBI, disorders of gut-brain interaction. And if you think about it, the brain and the gut are very closely connected. Uh, in fact, in the embryo, nerves go to the brain and nerves go to the gut and they're hardwired. And that's why you can be stressed and have diarrhea. Uh, you might see some someone get hit by a car and throw up. The connection is so great. And that then led to us coming up with definitions for the disorders of gut-brain act. You know, motility, visceral hypersensitivity, altered microbiome, yeah, what I really like about the definition um, in this new classification is it it points to the pathophysiology and like the actionable, some actionable steps that people can be thinking about when, you know, encountering a patient and how to how to stabilize that patient's um, digestive tract. So I, I don't know if that was one of the intentions, but it you know it seems like each of those areas that you talked about, such as the microbiome and visceral hypersensitivity, have therapeutics that target those those that's issues. A, that's that's where we're going. We're going to try to identify meaningful subsets by these criteria and by the physiology that has specific treatments. So someone can have IBS, abdominal pain, and say diarrhea, and as you get to know the patient and you understand their history and their symptom profile, you may learn that one patient had an infection and had what we call post-infection IBS, where they're dealing with alterations in the lining of the sensitivity of the bowel 
due to the bacteria. Another group may have early trauma and they may have um, um, poor um, uh, influ influence by family that might be negative about healthcare seeking, don't go to the doctor or go to the doctor too much or being too indulgent on symptoms. And that leads to behaviors later in life where people may go to the, you know, for instance, if, if a child has an illness and the parent is overly attentive and keeps bringing them to the doctor, well, the child learns they have a little ache, they're going to go to the doctor. Mm -hmm. And those are the high healthcare utilizers. And the low healthcare utilizers uh, are the ones where they, they, they feel ashamed to have the symptoms and they feel embarrassed. And, uh, and then there, there, uh, there are gender differences. Men are less likely to go than women because men tend to be less expressive about GI problems or physical symptoms, whereas women might feel more comfortable going. Yeah. So all of those things help us determine what's the best one way to treat. Yep, that makes sense. And so that, that leads me to my next question. So, Johanna, if you could talk about the patient experience and sort of educating them. So like in years past, patients with that were given a diagnosis of say IBS were almost felt brushed off. It was like, oh, they're just telling me this because they don't really have an answer for me. How has that changed in, in what you see? Cause I know you're really involved with education and um, helping, helping the patients understand their health. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for one thing, the, the reclassification and the renaming, if you will, from functional GI disorders to disorders of gut brain interaction is a really big thing for patients because it's a providing more legitimization to these conditions. You know, the word functional tends to have a bit of a stigma attached to it as being not real or not legitimate or psychological in nature. Um, so, so renaming them as disorders of gut-brain interaction, as you mentioned, um, brings in the pathophysiology, which then legitimizes the condition, makes the patients feel better about their diagnosis, like, oh, this is a real medical problem. It's not all in my head, which you're right. That had been uh, a, a problem for a long, long time. Um, physicians thinking of it as a diagnosis of exclusion, um, not really giving a clear diagnosis once all the tests show as nothing organic going on and they're negative endoscopies and colonoscopies. So, you know, coming back to the patient saying, well, we didn't find anything, there's nothing wrong with you, so I guess it's IBS. Well, as a patient, when you have this subset of symptoms that are really severe and, and life-altering, you know, you're, you're missing work, you're missing time with friends and family, you've changed the way you, you uh, operate to kind of work around your symptoms, that's really disheartening to hear. It must be, I guess that's what it is. And, you know, just eat some yogurt and try some yoga and uh, really lower your stress. You'll be fine. Well, you know, that's not really practical information and not very helpful for most patients. So um, I think for patients to better understand the pathophysiology of these conditions is key because then they know that it is a legitimate condition. They know kind of how to handle it. So we talk about, I talk to patients a lot about, okay, so these are your symptoms and this is the diagnosis you've been given. It is a real diagnosis and there are real treatments that we can offer that can really help you manage these symptoms and regain control of your health. What, what might they look like? 
You know, it could be lifestyle modification. It could be some dietary things. It could be some over-the-counter medications. For severe cases, you know, talk to your doctor about these different medications that can help with the diarrhea or with the constipation or even with the pain. You know, I talk a lot to patients about the anxiety and the stress that comes along with a chronic illness. And so it's not that the anxiety and the stress is causing the illness, but they're exacerbating your symptoms because it's stressful to have a chronic illness, particularly one that's GI related, because like literally every time you eat or drink for a lot of people, your stomach hurts or you're in the bathroom. I mean, that's that's anxiety inducing. Yeah. We talk about that. I talk to them a lot about that and how the brain and the gut are connected and, and how that happens. So you know, Dr. Drossman and I like to say a lot, when you calm the brain, you calm the gut and vice versa. And so I use that metaphor a lot to help patients understand that connection, the role that their brain is playing in their gut symptoms. Uh, I think for patients to understand all of that education is really important because once they have that, they're like, okay, now I feel better in control. I, I know how to handle this and I know how to talk to my doctor about it. And and it's not something that's controlling me. I'm controlling it. And that's really big, big thing for patients. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I think it also, I imagine, is helping doctors, maybe not on level of like a gastroenterologist because, you know, sort of they've been in the trenches with this for a while, but even you know, other like primary care providers now may have more of a roadmap of what to do. Cause like in the past, it's like you have diarrhea, I'm going to give you something to stop it. You have constipation. I'm giving, going to give you something to, to facilitate having a bowel movement. And that was kind of like, I remember going to a conference and someone said, it's a little bit like whale watching. It's just like go one end to the other, what looking on what side of the boat you're looking at. And uh, you know, it's, it's uh and now it's like, okay, well, let's step back and see how did you get this condition? What is your underlying, what's more of the root cause of what's going on? And there's there's more, I think, of a chance to not be symptom-based only. Yeah, but there's, there's more learning for the doctors that are needed, too, because, you know, I, it's true in primary care. I remember consulting with pharmaceutical companies uh, in the past, not too long ago, and um, one of the issues was that the gastroenterologist got it in terms of mechanism, but primary care in just a few minutes, and they said, what symptom am I treating? And the, 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 this, the companies were trying to say, understand the pathophysiology. That's how these, these newer drugs are working. So I think there is that. And, and, you know, the other part of the education for the doctors as well is to accept these as real conditions, just like Johanna's telling the patients. Because they don't, there's a lot of pressures on doctors now. They have to see more people in less time. Reimbursements are dropping. There's more time needed for certification. And, it, it, you know, only 60% of the time, well, 60% of the time is, is spent, um, let me turn that around, 40% of the clinic visit is face-to-face time with the patient in most cases because of EMR and other things that have to be done. And, and the doctors tend to gravitate toward the structural abnormalities because they think that's more real. You know, in primary care, if it's a broken foot or pneumonia or in GI, if it's Crohn's disease, that may get more attention than stomach pain that's been there 
for a long period of time. And that's where the whole idea of understanding that these are real disorders, understanding what the brain good axis is. Yeah. Um, you know, that pain is not just the injury that happens at the level of the bowel of the body. It's a combination of the signaling going from there and the brain's ability to downregulate or modify. And that's where the psychologic part comes in. You know, this, the brain-gut axis, people don't think about it, but it, it was a major breakthrough. It led to the Nobel Prize in 64. The way it started was that a, an anesthesiologist in World War II um, named Henry Beecher was giving pain medication to soldiers in battle. And what he found was the soldiers weren't asking for pain medication. They weren't having pain on the battlefront. And then when they went back to the hospital, pain went up and morphine requirement went up. And he said, you know, there's something different about this. And he figured the brain must be modifying the pain experience because he felt it was a ticket to get back out of the battle. He thought that the soldiers knew they'd get out. Or they might have felt they were too worried about getting killed. But anyway, that led to the two psychologists, Melzek and Wolf, to talk about this bi-directional system. And when you understand it that way, it opens up the door to hypnosis, to cognitive behavioral therapy, to meditation, to the use of neuromodulators, which actually work on the brain's descending inhibitory system. So if doctors learn that, it makes it more real for patients. And a lot of our effort with the Rome Foundation is to try to teach doctors through our workshops these um, the science behind what they're doing. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's interesting because the, the patients know this. The doctors need to know it. Like the patients know it, that they, they, they experience it. You know, if they're getting ready for an interview, they and they they can see their gut symptoms increase if they're you know it's uh and then the the doctors that haven't had the experience of having a brain gut disorder you know the education um you know is is it's what's going to bridge this uh these two worlds i think um you know it's it's interesting because i think everybody who you know, sits back and realizes, you know, this gut sense that we all have and these, you know, kind of uh, gut feelings like the, the topic of, of uh, that we're going to talk about in a little bit is, is something we can all relate to, whether you have a digestive disorder or not. And what is that? Is that, is that a neurotransmitter sinking connection? Is it, is it like you're talking about afferent nerves, descending nerves? And I think it's, it's something that the, IBS patient experiences almost daily. Yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, think about the, the poor doctor. You know, they go to med school and what they're taught are biologic sciences and structural uh, abnormalities. Uh, and later in residency, they're looking at imaging. Uh, but the patient's experience of ill health, we call that the illness, is not adequately taught. And, and so their whole goal is to find that misdiagnosis. I'll tell you an interesting uh, anecdote. I was giving grand rounds at NYU oh, about 15 years ago when I looked at the residents, and they presented a patient who had abdominal pain, uh, IBS-type symptoms, was very severe. And the residents were complaining about 
how annoying it was to, to have the patient come back over and over again. And they, and they didn't know what to do. And it actually it led to a discussion of their sense of helplessness because they didn't understand these conditions. And then I said to them, if on the next visit you made a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, would that make a difference? And they actually felt relieved. There was a sense of relief saying, at least we have something to work with. But from the standpoint of the patient, the patient would surely die. Whereas with these other conditions, you can live forever. Your life's not affected. Yeah. But you just have to learn how to treat them. So there's this whole mindset of finding something we feel comfortable with, what we learned about, which is structural diseases. And once we can get to the point, Adam, where I think there's a cohort effect, I think the younger doctors are getting more familiar with this. But the middle-aged and older doctors want nothing to do with it. And they, want, they don't even want to hear about it from yeah. pharmaceutical reps or from CME programs or the like. Yeah, and I think that that's certainly true in my community too. And I've co-managed certain patients with um, gastroenterologists and I've been really impressed by some of the younger docs having the IBS conversation with me and, you know, what, what can we do, whether it's, you know, breath testing or, you know, can we, can we look at some other biomarkers to help this patient? Um, They're thinking about things like mast cells and, histamine issues and you know these conversations are happening and it's it's exciting um for for all of us because you know we can we can offer the patient um actionable steps that they'll that you can feel better with um so yeah and I, you know i think also just to your point with you know that kind of example you gave is that um people who have anxiety um benefit like you're talking about from some of these, the, the relationship, um, the patient-doctor relationship, and how you hold, how you sit with the patient, right? And that's when you know maybe we can go into the um, gut-directed psychology and um, some of the hypnotherapy interventions that requires you know really good patient rapport to to be effective, right? Yeah. Well, I, there are two elements to it. One of the treatment modalities, but. The, fir- the first step before that is the doctor-patient interaction. How can the practicing doctor, who's not a psychologist, help the patient? And it may need referral, but it may not need a referral because, uh, I don't know, maybe Johanna could talk about a little bit about how, what a difference it made if the diagnosis was given to them and the physiology was explained and the, the doctor establishing a sense of trust uh, and being available. Do you have any elements you want to bring up, Joanna? Yeah, I think it's about the relationship that, that the patient has with the doctor. So first getting a clear diagnosis and then education around what that means. What What's the treatment plan going to look like? Um, you know, being the patient feeling comfortable to ask questions of the doctor um, that's managing their care, Um and, 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 you know, if the treatment plan is not something that they're comfortable with, being comfortable enough to say, you know, I don't, I don't know that I want to try a neuromodulator right now. What if I just try, you know, A, B, and C instead and then come back to that? Um, but it also is um, the, the, if the doctor thinks that gut directed um, hypnotherapy or CBT or any of those other um, treatment modalities are something that would be beneficial, it's 
making that recommendation to the patient in a way that's not stigmatizing. So the doctor, you know, because a lot of patients, they, they hear you need to see a psychologist and they immediately interpret that to be, you're telling me I'm crazy or I have a psychological condition. And so it's really about managing that communication and explaining the brain gut axis and explaining the role of stress and anxiety and all those other uh, emotions on the symptoms um, and, and how that GI health psychologist is going to help manage the symptoms. So, you know, they're not going to look at any other psychological conditions that might be comorbid that you may may not have. They're only focusing on your gut symptoms and how to help you manage those. And so I think that can be very beneficial for a lot of patients who are willing to give that a try for sure. But like Doug said, I think, you know, for a lot of us, myself included, it was just about finding that doctor that was willing to to invest the time and the into a relationship with me um, that was a long-term relationship that I felt comfortable with uh, asking questions and being a part of the team of my management plan. Yeah, yeah, I, I can see that. And, you know, it's interesting because um, I think having, you know, every patient has a different, um, will guide us all with a different modality or direction, right? So some people, they're not ready for um, uh, interfacing with something that's related to like CBT or or maybe they've had some trauma that they're not ready to confront, but they're, they're willing to talk about nutrition or, you know, maybe get some education on say like the low FODMAP diet, and then you can build from there. So the nice thing about what you guys are doing is that you're you're giving a place for the patient to get deeper treatment and to to go into a process because um, each each IBS sub you know there's all of these different subsets right so um, what's true for one person is not going to be true for the next person mm-hmm. yeah, and it is a process you know it's all about what's called patient centered care this two decades ago the Institute of Medicine part of the National Academy noticed that there was, they called it a chasm between doctor and patient, where doctors were taking control and prescribing and patients were dissatisfied. And they realized that the patient has to participate in the care. And that's not traditional. That's not surgical. Uh, You know, it's maybe certain subspecialties like family medicine, psychiatry, and some internal medicine uh, or other medical fields are getting there. But for the most part, it was doctor-centered. And so this was a big paradigm shift that is still not taken hold that we propose that that patients make the decision, the doctor provides the options. The doctor is the knowledgeable person where you weigh the benefits and the disadvantages of treatment and the patient makes the decision. By doing it collaboratively, then there is an advantage for the patient and the doctor. The patient feels more empowered, more able to make decisions and more responsible and all the research on chronic uh, illness shows that better outcomes occur when patients feel responsible for their care. It's also better for the doctor because the doctor is, let's say, off the hook of feeling totally responsible for the management. You know, So if you give a patient a treatment and three months later they say, it's not working, what are you going to do now? And the doctor tries to figure out what to do next. But if you do it collaboratively and the patient's not doing better in three months, then you say to the patient, well, let's look at the other options we talked about. What do you want to do now? 
huge paradigm shift. Now, when you get that kind of interaction, you build uh, what we call a nexus or a relationship or a bridge. And then patients are more trusting, more willing to discuss things that they wouldn't normally do before, more willing to hear what the doctor says. And then when the patient does that and they like the doctor, the doctor tends to like the patient. And then what you have is a collaboration. And then you can get the information you need to decide, should we also be getting CBT or anything else? Right. So have to, you have to build that. And that's, that's what the Rome Foundation and, and my group, Grossman Care, are doing, running training sessions to teach people how to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it, it's really interesting because, um, you know, when I run into some resistance with certain patients about talking about the brain-gut connection, um, I often refer to a paper that I came across where um, they looked at IBS patients um, with the various interventions that are available and mind-body interventions had like a number needed to treat of four or something amazing. Three, three. Okay, even better than I thought. So, um, and it's kind of for certain people who are more data-driven, it's eye-opening. Yeah, the pharmacologic drugs could be six or seven. Uh, The difference, of course, is also the selection. Patients, we did some, when we had had an NIH grant looking at CPT, and we found that we looked at 240 people, and, and it was very positive outcome with CBT. And what we found with the strongest predictors was believing that the treatment would work, believing you had the capability to affect a change and the relationship with the therapist. That came up on top more than the technique. Okay. What you did is how you do it. So with that in mind, the ones who go through CBT or hypnosis are motivated to do it. And they're in a very different position than someone who goes reluctantly or is just given a pill because they're participating in the treatment. The engagement of the patient in the treatment is it makes a big difference than just taking a pill. Yeah. 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 Wow. That's really interesting. With CBT, I mean, the thing that I love about CBT, I mean, as, as Doug mentions, the patients have to be an active participant and they have to commit to it. It, it is a little bit of work, as you probably know. Um, but the thing that I love about it is that it reframes um, those thought processes that so many patients with chronic illness get of this catastrophizing, oh my gosh, what if this is going to happen and then I won't be able to do this and then what if this and it just becomes this big you know, snowball effect and it reframes all of that into a way that you're, you start to start thinking, okay, as the patient, if I have an accident while I'm in public which by the way, I know cognitively has not happened in over a year, but if it were to happen, I would be okay. I wouldn't have a complete meltdown and never leave my house again because I know I could take these steps, A, B, C, and D. And and so it really reframes this kind of catastrophic thinking that can kind of get out of control with patients with with bowel issues um, where they suddenly are quitting their jobs and staying home and not socializing and not seeing anyone. And then you lead to this whole social isolation and stigmatization and all of these other comorbid depression and issues. Um, so it helps reframe that whole thing and flips it around 
Um, and I love that because patients come back after doing the work of CBT and go, you know, I, I, I don't have those same fears anymore. And my, my symptoms are so much less severe than they used to be. And you kind of go back and go, hmm, is that because your brain is now controlling your gut? You know, like it's just, it's really interesting. I, I really love the, the CBT approach for patients. Yeah, I love that. You've alluded to the idea of how do you get them to that point because they may not want to go. And, and if I could provide some tips, I think the first thing is, you know, patients come in with that mind-body dualism. Um, I have this pain. There must be something that's being overlooked. And, and that, the first step is to be able to educate, you know, cancer, which is their biggest fear, doesn't become painful until really advanced stages. And most chronic pain is anything but cancer. It's a predictor of not being cancer if it's been around for years. And the focus then is on the management. And if you explain that the brain has the power to downregulate, as I said before, you can then talk about it. And then they say, well, I know it's not stress. I know it's not in my it's real in my belly. And then you point out, you can give them examples of how the brain can have that um, effect and up and down regulating the pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it sounds, you go from like a maladaptive state to being adaptive, you know, like it's kind of interesting. You know, I always talk experience have experienced personally but also with patients like the the feeling of of being out of control um is almost worse than hearing worse news because if when, when you have a when you have a plan with bad news it's different than having an out of control condition um and not having a plan mm -hmm. and so what i was basically saying is like it's you're you're giving them tools to adapt and have a plan yes and, and the, um, the idea is that when you talk about illness, there's predisposing what happened genetically or early life, precipitating what happened that trigger it and perpetuating it. And many of the patients with chronic illness are in a perpetuation mode. A lot of the illness itself is not as relevant as the way they have changed as a person that's perpetuating it. Because now they're hypervigilant. They have Johanna very nicely talked about the anticipatory anxiety that has to be addressed. So they get a symptom, and I often say to them, what goes on in your head when you get a bad episode? And they'll usually play this tape for me. Oh, my God, here it comes again. I'm never going to get better. I have no control about this. I feel so vulnerable. I don't trust that anyone can help me. All of that, and that's tools for CBT. Mm -hmm. That the dysphoria, the anxiety, and the depression are tools for neuromodulators. And that's why the combination can be very effective treatments as well. Now, that's the more severe chronic condition. The doctor also has to say which patients go to that and which patients do we give rifaximin or an right. antispasmodic. Because what you're dealing with with a brain gut disorder is dysregulated. To what degree do you treat the gut, and to what degree do you treat the pain, the brain, or both? <clears throat> and that's where the discerning clinician can make those judgments 
So we do have some people, um, you know, who are low FODMAP diet or antispasmodics or fiber in some cases might make a big difference. But when it's been going a long time and it's more severe, we have to introduce the brain part of it. Makes sense. And then also, you know, they're they're not living in a silo here with just IBS. A lot of can, patients have other um, related or um, non-related conditions. And I'm even, you know, seeing more and more that there's an acceptance now that IBD patients, like 30% or so, also have IBS. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's something that... Um, you know, it's really good to have this this structure, but also to realize, like you're saying, that um, what people are able to do, you know, really depends on the, the totality of what they're experiencing. Um, so I'd love to spend the rest of our visit together hearing about gut feelings. Um, it's, you know, I, I know it's launching soon. And, um, you guys are really excited about it. I'd love to hear just more about it. I know we've touched upon some of the topics that are in the book, but can you share um, more about gut feelings and um, what you're hoping it does for the community of doctors and patients? Yeah, well, it's a collaboration. Um, I'll start because I always like to jump into these things, but I don't know. <laughs> we want our input as well. So, I mean, my whole career has been teaching doctors. And uh, even doing communication skills work up to doctors about how um, they can improve their communication with patients. And, and, and you know, been doing it for a long time. Uh, but what really happened was about three years ago, I met Johanna. And that made a difference because she as a patient and a patient advocate was giving a perspective to me that... I was learning from too. And then we also found out, uh, she, she won't acknowledge this, but she's a very good actor. <laughs> we started doing videos where she did role plays of patients that mimicked all these conditions of patients I've treated for 40 years. And, and so we started doing these workshops and it just grew and grew. And then somewhere along the way, uh, we decided we also should be doing these for patients. And, and then it became clear, why not write a book for patients and doctors? Uh, and, and it really came out as good as I could have imagined, because I had to work on making sure the language was clear enough for someone who was, let's say, high school educated, not a medical degree. And, and Johanna had to work toward saying the things that would, would impact on doctors. So that's my side of it. Maybe you want to add your yeah, well, that's pretty, it's pretty good. Um, I will say that COVID gave us this opportunity. You know, we had talked about doing it maybe a year and a half ago, but, you know, with the load that of work that we were carrying with Rome Foundation, it was like, yeah, maybe someday that would be a really cool idea. Um, and, and we were talking more about doing things for patients to help patients better understand these conditions as well. That's something that I'm still really passionate about doing. Um, so this is the first step of hopefully other programs. But um, then COVID came and all of our travel ended and all of our, our big conferences were canceled. And we were like, well, hmm, maybe we should write that book we've been talking about. 
Um, and so it really was a nice opportunity for us to collaborate on this. And, and as Doug mentioned, you know, we each have our own roles in it. But I think for patients, it's going to be really enlightening for them. You mentioned at the beginning of this um, conversation that you, your patient audience likes to hear some of the science behind these conditions and they want to know what's going on inside their bodies. And that's exactly what this book does. It talks about, you know, why these conditions were considered functional or, or psychiatric early on and why that's not true. Then it goes through every single condition and it explains the pathophysiology of it, the, the medication options, and the mechanism of action of all of the treatment options. I mean, it's really well done, scientific, data driven, but in a way that patients can understand. Um, we have great, beautiful uh, illustrations and images to help patients to see, you know, internally what's going on inside their body. And then we move into the patient's role. You know, patients have a responsibility in managing their own health. It doesn't all fall onto the doctor. And so we really talk about, I talk about what the patient's role is, um, how they should a how they should expect to be treated with respect, with dignity, etc. But what their role is as well, and what they need to be doing to help manage their own care, how to advocate for themselves, all of those sorts of things. Um, I tell my story, which um, I go into a lot of um, personal detail with, so hopefully it doesn't turn people off. But I felt like it was important to, for people to understand where I'm coming from as a patient as well. Um, and then we talk a lot about other issues related to patient care, um, you know, how women are treated differently than men when it comes to pain management, um, kind of that disparity that still exists in the healthcare system with managing women's health care. Um, and we give some examples and some data around that. And then we talk, I talk a lot about stigma and shame and, and how that um, can affect a patient's ability to heal and, and manage their care. And why we should ditch it. I say ditch the shame. You know, these are conditions that are very, very common. Um, lots of people have them. And the more we talk about it, the less stigma will be attached to it and the less shame will be attached. So let's start talking about it um, and, and what that can mean for patients and empowering them to have those conversations. So all in all, I think, you know, I hope that it's a great resource for patients but I hope it also helps doctors to better understand how patients are thinking and feeling about these conditions and how they can better manage their patients' care. Yeah, that's so great. I mean, a vehicle uh, for communication, it's a kind of a playbook for understanding options. And, um, you know, I think the, the way that patients are coming with information to their doctors already and to have you know, have something that the doctors can see has been well-researched and well put together and is well thought through, um, will be more likely to be accepted as being, okay, let's, let's, let's do this, or I'm going to pick up the book myself as a physician and read about it and learn more. Um, I know the gastroenterologists are overloaded with IBS patients and they can't really manage other conditions as much as they need to because of the demand. Um, and so I know that there's going to be more providers needing to learn about IBS and, and uh, disorders of gut-brain interactions um, uh, that are not gastroenterologists, primary care doctors, yeah. uh, you know, uh, it, it, yeah, uh, nurse practitioners, et cetera. So, um, well, 
I, I appreciate your time. I, you know, this has been really helpful and um, informative. And I, I would love to hear if you could either, either of you or both of you give us a few take home messages just to kind of finish up with or, and then anything else you want to share about how we can follow your work. I will be putting links to the pre-sale of, of gut feelings into, in the show notes. Oh, well, um, the first thing is buy the book. It, it talks about everything we said, and, and it'll be available, and you can get it from the Rome Foundation website uh, as well. Um, but I think the take-home message is for doctors um, is to understand the science behind these disorders and make it real for them, and to understand the basics of communication, which is in the book and in a lot of our programs that uh, workshops and the, uh, the articles we published um, so you can search Johanna's name and my name uh, to learn how to develop a patient-centered care model where the patient likes you and you like them. It means it brings more meaningfulness to the practice. If you understand the science and you develop the relationship, you'll be very, very satisfied. So that's my take-home message the yeah, and I think for patients, you know, patients with chronic illness just need to remember that chronic illness is just that it's chronic. So there's not going to be a magic wand or a magic pill that's going to completely bring about total recovery and healing in one fail swoop. So be patient. But the more you understand about your condition and about the treatments and the role that you have as a patient to manage your care and advocate for yourself, then the, the closer you're going to get to a more normal quality of life and and back to kind of the, the life that you might remember before all of these symptoms kind of started to take over your life. And I think, you know, continuing to be hopeful and not hopeless is a really important thing because chronic illness can kind of start to, to be draining sometimes and leave you feeling hopeless, but keeping that hope that, that little steps forward are going to bring about big change in the end is, is really important. And you can follow me on Twitter. Um, it's at Johanna Ruddy. And um, I, I talk a lot about education for patients with these conditions. Um, I actually work with a lot of doctors in, in doing some education with them as well. And then um, we have a platform for patients and clinicians on Twitter called Tuesday Night IBS. So at Tuesday Night IBS, every Tuesday night at 7, we um, come on and we do live chats. We have a lot of patients that share their concerns and their questions and their symptoms. And then we have a lot of docs that follow us and give recommendations and, and ideas, um, nutritionists and um um, gut-directed hypnosis and all sorts of things that we talk about. So I'd encourage you to follow um, both myself and the uh, Tuesday Night IBS on Twitter as well for additional resources. And then the, the DrossmanCare.com is the educational program and the gastric, we, the practice itself is for more complex patients. Uh, and, and we have uh, educational workshops and things of that sort. And then we both work with the Rome Foundation, which is the RomeFoundation.org. Excellent. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, it was really nice connecting with both of you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the One Thing Podcast. 
please share these episodes with your friends, loved ones, colleagues, patients, healthcare providers, anyone who you feel might benefit from hearing these informative interviews. We tend to learn best from people sharing things with us. That's often the first time it's introduced. So don't hesitate if these the content of these episodes reminded you of someone that might benefit from it. Forward the, the episode to them and I'm sure they'll either appreciate it or be appreciative that you've thought of them. So once again, we'll look forward to seeing you next episode on the One Thing Podcast. And again, much appreciation for you being here with me.